Welcome back to the Original Gangsters podcast. I'm Jimmy Bucciolato with my co-host, Scott Bernstein. Hey, now. And uh, we're, we're super excited to have Seth Ferranti back again for part two. The first episode, we had an epic interview talking about his early life growing up, some of the um, issues he was involved in, the counterculture, drug culture, and we talked about the problems he had with the criminal justice system. I think that's where we left off. And uh, he was on the run. He was on the U.S. Marshals' uh, top list, top 10 list for uh, wanted criminals. And uh, they tracked him down. Epic story. We don't want to rehash that because you can listen to the other episode. But now we want to start off with what it was like when he enters prison. He's convicted. His experiences in, in prison and then also how he develops some of the other projects he was involved in as a writer involved in filmmaking, things like that. So just an interesting dude to talk about. And let's let people know, I mean, even though Seth was a convicted criminal, you know, he, he categorizes himself as, a, as an outlaw, kind of like a uh, gangster Jack Kerouac. <laughs> and um, I like that. <laughs> but, you know, he came from a, a pretty a good family, and he, he wasn't someone that was really surrounded by you know, hardened criminals right. in this um, journey of his. So he's 22 years old. He's entering federal prison. And I, that just must have been so terrifying um, coming from, you know, you, you had not been incarcerated before. You had never been to a prison before. And it's not like you came from the hardened streets of, of uh, you know, the BK Bronx or South Central Los Angeles. You know, you came from... You know the, the the Northern California uh, lifestyle or the or the Virginia lifestyle, uh, which were both kind of more uh, affluent and and so what was it like? You know, being pretty much thrown in into a, a, a viper's den with no life jacket and just told to fend for yourself. No, it, it was crazy, and I, and I can tell you what I mean. That the first night, you know, like when they when they bring you in, you go through R and D, like receiving discharge. You know, and they give you like a little bunk and they put you in the brown khakis and, and give you like some blue slip on shoes. And then they send you out to the compound. But they usually do it, you know, like after count. So, you know, after the day's activities are, are pretty much done, you know, they, they you're sitting in the holding cell all day. They feed you like a paper bag lunch, you know, like bologna sandwich. So, you know, I go into this unit and, and everybody, you know, is basically locked in when I when I come in, you know, so I walk into the unit. And it, it was in SCI Manchester, which is a medium-high security prison in, in the foothills of Kentucky. And I went in this unit, and the unit's called Clay Unit, and they put me on the B side. And so I walk in, and they just kind of tell you, okay, this is your cell number. And it's not like stereotypical, like people think, you know, like prison cells, like, you know, Alcatraz or, you know, like the, you know, American Media, the different prison movies with bars and stuff. This looked more like... Uh, almost like a college dormitory. Like you walk in, you know, the, it was a brand new federal prison. They probably built it like 92 or 93, you know, so maybe like a year before I got there, it barely had been open. So there's like doors, you know, and they have like a little slot, you know, so the guard can look in. And so they're like, you're in this cell, you know, it's in the upper tier. So I walk up there and I look in and, you know, there's one dude in the bottom bunk and it's, it's like an older dude, you know, sleeping. And I see, you know, the top bunk is mine because I'm a new guy. So I walk in and, and he's like, you know, where are you from? Whatever. And, you know, he gives me like some, you know, toothpaste or like a book or whatever. He's like, you know, a towel. He's like, here, man, if you need some extra stuff, 
you know, because when you come through R&D, they don't really give you that much, the bare minimum. And so, you know, I'm tired from traveling the bus all day. I was chained up, you know, on the bus. That's how you travel. So I just hop up in the bunk, make my bed real quick, and I go to sleep. I wake up in the morning and, you know, I'm, I'm like hungry, man, because I only ate like, you know, bologna sandwiches all day, you know, cheese sandwiches and maybe like an apple. So I'm like starving. And I'm a young kid. I'm like 22. I'm like starving. I'm famished. So I get up, you know, they crack the doors like 5 a.m., you know, and then, uh, you know, I asked the old dude, I'm, I'm like, what's up, man? I'm like, they got, they got chow. And he's like, yeah, you got to go to the chow hall. So he kind of explains it to me. So, you know, I jump up out of bed, you know, brush my teeth, you know, don't even really take a shower. Cause I'm so hungry, you know, and I go stand by the door. He's like, just go stand by the door. They'll call chow. So I go down there and I'm standing by the door. Right. And I'm ready to go to chow. And then all of her, I, I hear like these dudes cussing at each other. Right. Like some black dudes, they, they're like cussing each other. And I'm like, what? And I look over and then there's this, this big dude is like punishing this little dude. Right. And then, you know, the little dude like goes, and I'm like, what the fuck? And then like this little dude, you know, and everybody's just kind of standing around acting like they don't even notice, right? You know, the other people, there's only a couple people waiting to go to chow. And then the little dude, like you see me, like runs to his cell. You know, he has like a, a, you know, blood dripping down his face. He goes to his cell and he comes back and he has, he has like a, you know, I didn't know what it was then, but it's like a weapon. Like they call it a lock and a sock, you know? So he put like a padlock and a sock, you know, two socks and he winds it up and he has it, you know, tied around his wrist and he comes up and he goes back to the, the big dude. He's like, what the fuck now? And, you know, he starts smashing the dude, cracks the dude on the head, right? And the big dude kind of like wobbles and it falls and, and he's bleeding, you know, and then like the cop finally sees what's going on, you know, the, so the cop comes out of his office and he runs out there. And like, I saw all that, man. And I went back to the cell, man. I didn't even go to chow. I just went back into my cell and I was like, man, I was like, what the fuck do I got myself into? You know, and I just go back in the cell and kind of, you know, lay back down, you know? So it was like kind of crazy. That's the first scene of the movie. We just, we just wrote it. Our movie will open with a 22-year-old Seth walking into federal prison for the first time and seeing that fight, and then it will freeze frame, and we'll go back, and we'll start from the beginning. That, that's, that's, that, that's the way you open the movie. I just, I just gave you guys gold right there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that was kind of my intro, you know, to federal prison, but... You know, I mean, that's a pretty, more general. let's not gloss over that. I mean, that's like for someone who's never been incarcerated before, for someone that really hadn't been around any of the type of individuals that you were put into this environment with. And within 12 hours of you stepping foot in the facility, you see this incredibly violent fight break out but by, uh, between two inmates. So what's going through your head? I mean, what's what's the mindset there like oh wow i can't i knew i knew this was some heavy shit but this is even heavier than i thought no i mean i, I just wanted to escape that's why i mean i just went like went back in my 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 cell and and like laid back in my bunk you know because i was just like man like if this is what i gotta deal with like every day you know it was just like it was unmanageable and and i don't want to say like like i was i was terrified or i was shook or i was scared you know because you know, really, I'm not like the type of dude, like, you know, like I'm going to, like, I'm scared to death. I'm not like that type of dude, but I mean, it, it was like, you know, in, in a way it was like, it was more like shock. Like I was just like in shock. I was like, Oh my God. And, and like, I had 25 years. I was like <laughs> 25 years of this. I, I, I was just like in shock. It was like crazy culture shock. You know, I had, 
you know, I'd seen the movies and stuff, but I had no idea. And then, you know, like that happened like within 10 feet of me, you know, and I was just like, fucking hell, this is what I got to deal with for 25 years. And I'm just laying in my bunk, you know, like, like, you know, basically like, how am I going to deal with this? You know, but at the same time, you know, cause like, cause I'm a young man and, and you know, you can't show any weakness in there. You know, it's like, you got to put on this mask, you know? So I, I'm just like, I'm like, man, I gotta, I gotta harden myself up, man. I gotta act like this shit is nothing, you know? Cause if, if you, if people, you know, sense any type of weakness, then it, it's like piranhas, you know, they're just going to eat you up. So, you know, I knew this to an extent, even though, you know, I, I, I couldn't verbalize it like I can verbalize it now, but you know, that's, that's everything I was feeling. And I really didn't even know how to verbalize it, but I mean, mainly it was just like, it was shock because I knew I had to deal with it. But at the same time, I was like, how am I going to deal with this? So in your experience, was the facility where you were incarcerated, was it segregated by Caucasians, Latinos, African-Americans? Yeah, break down all the, the, the prison ethnic yeah, cliques. The, right. No, all prisons, even the county jails I've been in, they are, are segregated. You know, like when you go to the chow hall, you know, like you got the white tables you got the spanish tables you got the black tables you know and then some you might even have like the gay tables you know and then even in, in, within the white guys you might have the aryan tables you got the mafia tables you know you got like what they call the independents you know the guys that they don't run with any gangs so i mean it's all it's all segregated it's even you know like if you go into prison and uh you're a white dude because the cops, they'll just put you wherever. They got a space, right? So if you're a white dude, and if you go in the cell with a black dude, then the other white dudes are going to look at you funny because you're supposed to refuse. You're supposed to say, I'm not going to cell with a black dude, you know? Spanish is, is a little bit more accepted for a white dude. But, like, if you're a white dude or a Spanish dude, you're not supposed to go in the cell with a black dude because then the other white dudes are going to look at you like, what are you doing in the cell, you know? You're a race, tra you're a race traitor to them. Yeah. And, and sometimes, you know, that you, when you first come in, you know, they just stick you wherever. But then, you know, the white dudes will come in the morning, you know, and, and they'll grab you and they'll be like, man, what's up, man? You got to get out of this cell. And like, if you resist and say, like, I'm OK, no, I'm cool, you know, then then you get immediately like X marked. Did you know this you know? etiquette or did you have to learn this etiquette? No, no, I, you learn it, man. You know, it, I'm talking about you specifically, like 22 year old Seth. Did you know? No, I didn't know any of it. I, I you know, but in, in county jail, you know, I've been in county jail, you know, since since I got caught because I got caught like October '93, and then I was I was sent, you know, into the uh into the feds like before Christmas because the feds moved real fast. So you know, I had about maybe whatever two months, you know, county jail. But I, I was like in a federal holding unit with all federal people in a county jail. So you know, there's a lot of people coming back to court, back and forth. So, you know, you hear people talk and you kind of learn things, you know, dudes kind of, you know, scope you out. If you're their homeboy, you know, what are you here for? You know, what's your paperwork? You know, are you a snitch? You know, are you a chomo? Are you a solid dude? And then even like when you find out like where you're designated, you know, like they'll, they'll tell you once you get sentenced, they'll say, okay, it'll come down. You're going to this prison. And then it might take, you know, a couple more weeks until you go there. So you might holler at some of the dude, other white dudes on the block and they'll be like, Oh, I know so-and-so, my homeboy's here, you know, or this homie's there. And they might even send you with a kite. Like, they'll write you a note. Like, they'll say, you know, and for whatever reason, I, I was always lucky. Like, dudes always, you know, took a liking to me or, or thought I was a good dude or whatever. So dudes would always send me to other joints with kites, 
you know, and even like when I first went, you know, I, I, I met a dude, a dude I was in the county jail with this dude, his name was Mike. He was like a dude from Virginia. So he was my homeboy because my case was for Virginia and he had come back to the county jail for like some different stuff. And so they were sending him back to Manchester. So I actually rode on the bus with him, you know, and he kind of schooled me the whole way. He went to a different unit. He was in a different unit, Whitney B and I was in Clay B. But, you know, he kind of schooled me. He said, yeah, when we get on the yard, he's like, you know, you smoke weed. He's like, I'll, you know, we'll smoke some weed when we get there. He goes, like, I'll, I'll introduce you to all the homies. He goes, you know, just when we get there, you know, the biggest thing, like, when you get there, you got to go to your – if you don't have your paperwork from your case, you got to go to your counselor, you know, and you got to request, like, they call it your PSI, your pre-sentence investigation. And then, like, you got to take that. And like the first day, you know, I would get that, or sometimes it might take a day or two to get that, you know, through the institutional mail from your counselor. And you take that, you actually take that out to the yard and they call it, it's like a paperwork party. Hmm. So I go out to the yard and I got my PSI, you know, and I, I'm with the, my homeboy, Mike, that I, you know, met on the bus and he's already vouching for me saying I'm a good dude. So I go out there and sit on the bleachers with all, like all the Virginia white boys and they all go through and they look through my paperwork to see if they can see any, you know, discrepancies, like, you know, if I'm hot or I'm this or I'm that, you know, and then they all look through it and they're like, okay, yeah, you're a good boy. So they they're, vetting, they're, they're vetting you. Yeah. What are they looking for? That Anything that would indicate you were a snitch or something like that? Or a yeah, child molester? Snitch, snitch, child molester, or rapist, you know, any any type of, uh, anything, beating women, you know, any any type of thing like that. You know, the dudes in there look down upon, you know, some dudes kind of skate with that, you know, like in their jacket, like that's what they call it, your jacket. But, you know, as a new guy, you know, if you got any of that shit in your jacket, you know, they're, they're pretty much going to, you know, ice you out, check you in or try to extort you, you know, or whatever, or, you know, treat you like a mark, you know, and another thing they do, they, they call it like a heart check, you know, like a lot of times, you know, even like when you first get on the block, you know, the white dudes might not even approach you at first. They just want to see how you act. You know, and, and a lot of times when you come into a new joint, and especially like if you're a young white dude like I am, you know, like sometimes, you know, like a black dude or a Mexican dude, like they'll try to push up on you, especially if they see like the other whites, you know, aren't flocking to you or kind of taking you under their arm, you know, so the other whites will kind of see, you know, how you react, you know, and, and, and they call it a heart check, you know, and like if they, if they see a black dude, you know, because it's usually the dudes that try to press up on you. Like, they're known dudes. Like, you know, they're trying to turn people out or they're known. For the audience that might not understand all the lingo, explain to them what, like, when you, when you say press up on a dude, you mean, like, try to strong arm him? Yeah, you know, like, like they, they come out, they feel you out, they see what you're about. You know, if, if they think you can, I mean, if they think they can take your ass, they'll try to take your ass, you know. But most of the time, you know, they're going to try to get you to buy something or, or they're going to try to loan you something. And then, you know, when you go to commissary, they'll make you pay them back, like, you know, like you, they'll say, oh, you want a pack of cigarettes? And then when you go to commissary, they'll be like, oh, you owe me carton. <laughs> you know, so it's, 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 it's kind of like, like almost like soft extortion, mm -hmm. you know, back, backed by violence. So, you know, if necessary, but, uh, you know, that's what they do. Your, your, your own, you know, like the other white dudes, they call it like a hard check. Like they see how you react and, you know, if, if you like resist it and then if there's any type of situation, then they'll come and get your back. But like, if you, you know, try to play the dudes like, Oh no, man, I got you, whatever. And you act all scared and timid, then, you know, then they're going to move in on you. Cause they're going to go tell the black or Spanish dude. That's my people. You ain't extorting them. I'm extorting him. So the, the, ah, the beauty of rehabilitation. Yeah. So the, um, the white dudes at that point, 
it was interesting. You said then they're like the independent white dudes. So, so do the independent white dudes kind of click together too if they're not affiliated with the Italians or, or AB, Aryan Brotherhood, or they're not outlaw bikers? I mean, like a dude like you who's like, you know, solid dude, white guy, he can he can hold his own. Like where where do you fit in in that social politics of that facility? Well, I, I always, you know, like when people ask me before I, where I was from, my case is from Virginia. So, you know, I would always be homeboys. Those are my homeboys because we got the same number. Like the Virginia number is like 083, 084. And my, my number was like 18205, 083. So those are my homeboys. But then I grew up in California. So, you know, I grew up in California. People are like, where are you from? I'm from California. You know, even though I got a Virginia number, that's where I caught my case. So I was lucky because when I went to Manchester, I'm from California. So people are like, where are you from? Where are you from? California. So then they tell other people. And then the, the only people from California in Kentucky are like the, the Serenio gangbangers. And there's not that many of them. There's maybe like, you know, five, six on the whole compound. But there was like two of them on my unit. So as soon as they find out I'm from California, they come, you know, and then they find out that the white boys already vetted me, you know, and I, and I got a pass. You know, they didn't check me in or nothing. My paperwork's good. Then they embrace me because I'm the homie from Cali. You know, because, it, you know, in the California prisons, you know, historically, the, the Mexicans and the whites have always been, you know, allies. So they come and embrace me. So that, that was weird because, you know, I'm like fresh off the bus. And like, you know, anybody that's been to prison, they know like the California Mexicans are basically like the most vicious dudes. Like they have the they have the most vicious reputation. You know, that's basically because, you know, the Mexican mafia, the M.A., the like those dudes are so... Yeah, those dudes are like so thorough. And even these dudes, they're just Serenos. They're still under the MAs because every Southern California Mexican is under the MA, you know? And so they see me with these dudes. And then the second thing was, I got an Italian last name. And really, I'm adopted. I'm not even Italian. I'm like, I'm like Irish. You know, I'm like Irish through and through. I'm like probably, you know, I don't know, probably 75, 80% Irish. Anybody can look at me and tell me I'm Irish. But I got, a, I got an Italian last name. So all the mob dudes, and I'm on the East Coast, you know, Manchester, Kentucky. I mean, it's Kentucky, but it's still, you know, the East Coast. It's like the mid-Atlantic region. So all the mob dudes are coming to me like, oh, where are you from? You know, who's your people? You know, uh, you know, and some some of my Italian side of the family, you know, my adopted, because I grew up with that family. You know, my dad adopted me when I was two. You know, it's my real mom, but, you know, she married my dad and he adopted me. And his family was from Boston, even though his family was all military guys. Like, you know, my, his dad, which was my grandpa, and him were military guys. But, you know, I'm like, oh, from Boston. So they, oh, where are they from in Boston? So, you know, I'm like immediately, I'm not even on the compound a week. And I, you know, people see me with all the mobsters and they see me with like the Serenio gangbangers. And then they, you know, and then like the white boys from Virginia, they're like embracing me too. So, you know, I really... I mean, just because of who I am and what my name was or, or whatever, I kind of fell, you know, right into this crowd where people and I got 25 years. So people, you know, back then in 93, you know, it was still the old law in the feds. Most of the people in the feds were like the old law, like pre 89 before, you know, it was just like 88, 89. They started they did that omnibus crime act and they started giving out all those mandatory minimums. You know, before that, people were getting like 10 years and being paroled in like three years. That was old law. So most of the guys were old law. And they were like, 25 years, they were like, how many people did you kill? You know, and they're like, you know, I look like a little college kid and, and, and I got all this time. So people are kind of looking at me, like, even though I'm this little, you know, and, I, and like I say, I'm, I'm six foot one. And probably back then I was probably like 175, 180, you know, I was slender. 
you know, I'm, I'm bigger now. I'm like 220, but you know, I, I worked out in the penitentiary for like 21 years, but uh, you know, I, I was kind of slender, you know, and I looked like a little college kid. So people are like, you know, who the fuck is this little white kid? But I'm hanging out with the the most thorough fucking serenial gangbangers on the compound. You know, I'm, I'm the Italian dudes are always like calling me over, you know, to hang out with them, you know, and then I'm like with my homeboys from Virginia. So, you know, really I, looking back, I, w- I was really lucky because a prison is about, you know, who your allies are, who people see you with. So like, you know, pro- it's like proximity is currency. Would you say that like proximity to certain people and yeah. groups, you know, can carry a lot of weight. Yeah. Cause if they see you and then plus I had a lot of time. So they're like, Oh, this dude must be somebody, even though like, I'm like this little fucking, you know, not, I wouldn't say terrified, but you know, I'm, I'm scared and shock, you know, but then, so that's kind of my personal story, but to get back to the independence, you know, like every time when you come, I didn't know this when I first came in, but you know, I knew it after I transferred then every time when you first come to a prison, they have these people, they're called like the SIS. I don't even know what it stands for. It's like, some investigation thus but basically they're like the you know the fbi of the prison you know the investigative arm they call them sis so every time before you hit the compound you got to do a sis review and what the sis do they they come and they ask you they're like who do you run with you know especially the higher like if you're in medium i mean it's more prevalent in the in the penitentiaries like the highs but even medium highs and, and sometimes even lows they're like who do you run with you know, and like when I first come, I'm like, what do you mean? Who do I run with? What the fuck are you talking about? I don't know. You know, I don't, <laughs> I don't even think I remember that conversation, Right. you know, but, uh, cause I'm like in such shock, but you know, later on, you know, when I, I'm transferring around, cause I, I was in about eight different federal prisons, you know, over my 21 years, you know, I knew when I come in, they say, who do you run with? I'm independent. So independent isn't necessarily a gang. It's like a, a classification, you know, that the, the SIS or the gang investigators use to classify you as, you know, you're independent, you're a white boy, but you're independent. You're not Aryan brotherhood. You're not Aryan circle. You're not Texas AB. You're not dirty white boy or one of the other, you know, offshoots. I mean, there's so many different gangs, you know, it's, it's crazy. Even within the white race. Do people lie? Like, can you get away with lying? Like if you're an AB, can you say you're not an AB? Your your tattoos tattoos probably give you away. Yeah. Well, it's also, you know, like, uh, some people lie because they're scared, so they want to seem like they're badder than they are. You know, like, uh, but I mean, once you get on the compound and you're with the real dudes, they're going to expose you. You know, like, you can't say you're AB and you're not AB. You can't have an AB tattoo and you're not AB. Yeah, I mean, I've heard stories of dudes that say they're AB or have AB tattoo, and then they go on the compound with some real ABs, and they make them fucking, like, you know, scrape that shit off with a razor, you know, or cover it up. You know, they got to cover it up. You know, I mean, vicious. They're like, you know, you can't you can't do that type of shit. But, uh, you know, not if you're around the real dudes. But sometimes, you know, when I was in like a lot of the real AB dudes, like they weren't walking in the yards, you know, or if they were walking yards, a lot of them were in lockdown, you know, because they were having all the federal indictments on the AB, like in the 90s and early 2000s. So most of them were in lockdown. So it might just be like AB associates. They're not really ABs. But you would see more like like some of the, the, the gangs that the ABs run, you know, like at different times, they were running the dirty white boys, they were running the Nazi lowriders, you know, they were running some of these other, you know, aff- affiliate groups. It's such a, but, sub, uh, it's such a crazy subculture. And I'm going to digress for just one second. And I, I, I would, I'd be interested in, in your opinion. Um, do you think if the 
general public really knew what was going on behind bars, because I don't think they do, and I don't think they want to know. But if every man and woman, you know, that pays their taxes and, you know, goes to church every Sunday and, you know, the the, the quote-unquote good citizens of, of America, you think if they really knew what was going on behind bars and they really could wrap their head around the fact that there's no rehabilitation, there, you know, it, it's a it's a crime school, it, it's, a, it's a gladiator school. I mean, do you think if that knowledge was more widespread that there would be giant, you know, sea changes institutionally? Because I, I, you know, I've been exposed to it in my reporting the last 15 years. And you know, as much as I thought I knew before, and I probably knew a lot more than most, I mean, it's, I, I can't get over the, how, like you use the word vicious, how vicious that subculture is. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, I mean, it's, it's cutthroat. It's like, this is how I equate it. And, and then people do the same stuff out here. It, it's just, it's not as blatant, but it's like in there, everybody, it's like you step on somebody else's back to make yourself seem better. You know, like literally, you know, like the, like the hierarchy, you know, you got the hierarchy, like the chomos and the snitches are on the bottom. So, you know, if it's like a white snitch or a white chomo, like all the other dudes, like, you know, with whatever charges, drug charges, you know, armed robbery, you know, murders, whatever, it's like they prop themselves up on their back. And then, you know, like the gang members, like they prop themselves up on like all the other white dudes back. Like we are the elite white dudes in prison. So, uh, yeah, it, it's fucked up. Just for people to know, a chomo is a child molester, I'm guessing? Yeah, yeah, child molester, pedophile. Okay. You know, and, um, yeah, but... I, do you, I mean, do you I agree? Do you agree that, like, most people have no idea what goes on in our prison system? No, uh, I, I don't think they do. And, and really, it's... They don't want people to know. Right, and I don't think people want to know. I don't think they want... I think it's... They, they, it's like... Um, Intentional blindness, or or uh, I don't know, out of sight, out of sight. Yeah, they, they don't. It's it's such a a twisted picture. They don't they don't want to look at it. There's a quote from Dostoevsky, and I know Seth and I were talking about political philosophy earlier. Dostoevsky, the uh, quote is: uh, "The degree of civilization in, in a society can be judged by entering its prisons." So I think that's speaking to what Scott is. Is referring to it may be a reflection on us. Yes, it is. It's just, where, <laughs> just as it's much warehousing. As... There's no. Just don't tell me it's rehabilitation. There's nothing rehabilitative. No, not at all. About it the the, no. the American prison system. It's like when we're in there, right? We're we're in there with like all these long sentences, right? And it's like all the people, like really. That's why I started writing in prison because it's just like you want to like reach out and it, this you know speaks to what you were saying you know the, the question you asked you know a couple of minutes ago it's like you just want to like wake people up like do you realize like what is going on here like what you know we're spending decades of our lives in here you know warehouse in these inhumane conditions you know and and i think like in the in the like i would say like the 80s and, and like when i was there the 90s and even the early 2000s like like you said like a lot of people they just didn't care, man. They didn't give a fuck. We were out of sight, out of mind. They figured if we're in there, we deserve to be in there. It's really, you know, really since I've been out, like the last couple of years, really since almost like, you know, 2018 with a lot of these movements like Black Lives Matters, you know, and the police brutality, you know, being on YouTube all the time and, and how they just, you know, treat African-Americans like they're subhuman. You know, it's, it's really been more lately where people are looking at and the same thing, like they have you know, people are making millions of dollars off cannabis, but there's still all these cannabis prisoners locked up, you know, and nonviolent. I mean, there's something like 60,000 
nonviolent cannabis prisoners locked up doing time in the U.S. So I think it's really been just the last couple of years that people are kind of realizing, you know, what is going on and, and really looking at it. Because I feel like the whole time I was writing, I was with my writing, I was basically like screaming out to the world, like, look what the fuck they're doing. And it's really like, you know, a few media outlets, you know, they they like my sensationalist counts and stuff. But anytime you you talked about, you know, I write about criminal justice reform, you know, or, or you know, more like political stuff. I mean, they didn't care. They didn't want to hear it. They just, you know, they wanted the more sensationalist stuff, you know? So it, yeah, it's crazy. Cause, uh, I think maybe now people are, are more aware or more in tune, but you know, I mean, I was at the height of the war on drugs, you know, where the lock them up, throw them away the key era, you know, where, when I went into federal prison, there was like 50,000 people in 1993. When I got in 2014 in federal prison, there was like 225,000 people. So the system, in that 21 years I did, the system, you know, gained 175,000 people. And that's just the federal system, you know, which is one of the largest along with like, you know, California and Texas and Florida. But, you know, there's like 51 more prison systems besides the federal system in the United States. And, and by the way, we, we have a general policy on the podcast of not, not getting, we, we talk about politics, but we don't get partisan. But just to point out, those were under Democratic administration. So for some of my liberal friends who think that somehow one side is worse than the other, um, you know, look no, into it. I look tell into people, it. <laughs> I, tell, yeah. I tell people all the time, right? All right, because, you know, when I think it was, it was like, you know, Reagan Bush, you know, they made all the laws. But then when I went in prison, then Clinton came in and everybody in prison, we we're like, oh, Clinton. Clinton built 150 prisons. Yeah, it was you worse. Know, there was... It was yeah, worse than like a, uh, yeah, yeah. We went. There was like maybe thirty-five federal prisons, and it went up to like a hundred and fifty or hundred sixty federal prisons during his eight years. He built over a hundred federal. Yeah, prisons. you're figuring he's super liberal and he's going to come in and he's going to make things easier. When in reality, he which, made things which, hard. And by the way, I mean that people were there was no reason to believe that. I mean, he was a Dixiecrat. He mm -hmm. was a conservative Democrat. From there was no reason to believe. In other words, if you knew him. It made perfect sense. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's what he would. That's what he would do. And there's two politicians in the White House right now who co-signed. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, but Seth, oh, I think yeah. I think everything we've just laid out, you know, in the first 20 minutes of this uh, second part of the interview, I, I, I think it it makes your story even more important, more impactful. There were so many odds against you. That the deck was so stacked against you. And at some point, you decided to, to make the system work for you and say, yeah, there are all these reasons why I should just curl up into a ball and stay in my cell and, and uh, you know, just kind of eat the, the meal that I've been given. But you decided to cook a whole other meal and, and, and you feasted on it because you flipped the script, flipped the switch and turned yourself into a very accomplished writer inside prison. So kind of talk about that evolution. Wait, let me, let me, Seth, let me, uh, if I can read you something, I think this is relevant to what you're about to comment on, but this is a quote um, that I, I picked from Alex de Tocqueville. And uh, I used this quote to start off an article I wrote, shout out to myself <laughs> for the journal of philosophical and theoretical criminology. And, um, the quote I took from Tocqueville to start it off, because I think what, what what we're talking about here 
and, and you know, we're, we're talking about Clinton, but this actually predates Clinton. This is like in the, in the American DNA, this, this idea of like punish the criminal. So this is because Tocqueville's writing in the, in the, in the, you know, early to mid uh, 1800s. So he wrote in Europe, a criminal is an unhappy man who is struggling for his life against the agents of power while the people are merely a spectator of the conflict. In America, he is looked upon as an enemy of the human race and the whole mankind is against him. So even back in the 1800s, Tocqueville has this insight that in Europe, the criminal is viewed as this sort of existential, um, you know, struggle, whereas in the United States, there's this this idea of like, um, uh, I don't know, vengeance or something, like uh, eye for an eye, like you you fucked up, and social Darwinism, like you're you're gonna like you're gonna do your time now, and the, 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 the more unpleasant it is, the better, you motherfucker, <laughs> because you like you like violated these norms, and uh, so I, I think it's deep, it's 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 deep um, embedded in our political cultural DNA, and I know like like Seth, you were you were actually writing about that, um, and and you know we're we're studying from an academic perspective but Seth was actually in this facility experiencing it firsthand so sorry to interrupt I know uh that was a good question Scott answered so about about your writings yeah well just, just I would take say, us just take us through the journey kind of from the first time that that you conceived the idea of of trying to become a professional writer inside or from maybe even before that when you were just writing to, as as therapy as as a way to to stay sane and how did that then evolve into what you've become now which is one of the more celebrated uh true crime authors that there is in you know on, in the business right now yeah well basically you know from from 13 to uh, till I got locked up in 22 you know I, I abused drugs you know I abused drugs you know LSD you know cannabis you know, alcohol, you know, I had a little, you know, cocaine binge. So, uh, when, you know, when I got locked up and I, I had done some writing mostly, you know, I, I, I used to play guitar and write songs, some poetry, you know, and, and before I got involved in drugs, I was always like, you know, straight A student. Like when I was a kid, you know, prior to using drugs at 13, I was always like straight A student. I was always like, uh, you know, like in the gifted classes, like in California, they used to call them like mentally gifted minors, or they used to call it gate, like gifted and talented education. So, you know, like one day a week, I would go to like the, the special school for, you know, the people with a high IQ or whatever, where you could kind of do creative stuff. But, you know, kind of, I didn't really do much of that, you know, from 13 to 22, because I, I was co so consumed, you know, with like drugs and, you know, like that rock star image and, and being the bad boy. So when I get to federal prison at 22, it's really, it's like the first time I'm like clean in like nine years, you know, and I, I kind of come out of this haze. And luckily, also, when I first got to prison, federal prison, they still had the Pell Grants for prisoners. So for the first two years I was in prison, they had college classes. Like, the teachers used to come in from Eastern Kentucky University College, and they would teach at night, you know, on, on the prison campus. You know, on the prison, not the campus, but the prison yard, you know, in education. So, you know, I kind of dove back into education, you know, when I first got in there, you know, because with all the stuff, you know, I played sports and I worked out, but that's what I did. I played sports. I worked out and, you know, I, I stayed like, they call it the law library, but it's really like the education building. You know, a lot of people are in there fighting their case, but I was in there, you know, educating myself, taking these college classes through the Pell Grants, which, you know, used to pay for it. 
So, man, I, I dove into education, you know, and, and the first two years, you know, I, I did that and I, I got, think I got like 24 credits, you know, like basically like, you know, about 12 credits a year, you know, in two semesters, I was taking, you know, maybe two classes a semester. And um, then after I did that for two years, they abolished the Pell Grants for prisoners, you know, because they had started having a bunch of stuff in the media where, uh, you know, people on the, in the world aren't getting Pell Grants, but prisoners are getting them. So it was, it was kind of this big political thing. So they abolished the Pell Grants for prisoners. So um, then I was, you know, I was kind of lost for like a minute because I, I dove back into education so hard. I, I didn't really know what I was going to do. And, you know, during this whole time, this first couple of years, you know, because I had destroyed my relationship with my parents, you know, through this whole time. You know, I was a fugitive and, and all this shit and they didn't know where I was. And I was, you know, on drugs and, you know, uh, selling drugs and all this stuff. So I kind of destroyed my relationship with them. So as I'm doing these first two years in college, I'm kind of like repairing the relationship with them, you know, and I'm sending them my grades, you know, I'm trying to, you know, make them proud of me, though, even though I'm in a fucked up situation, you know, I'm trying to do something positive. So once they abolished the Pell Grants, you know, I was kind of like, well, I don't know what I'm going to do. And then uh, that's where, you know, my parents kind of stepped in and they said, look, you know, we're going to help you find, what about correspondence courses? You know, we're going to help you find some programs and we'll pay for them. So they started doing that. And I enrolled in a program in uh, Penn State University, you know, it was an associate's degree program. And so I started working towards that. And that's where I started, you know, I started working on on the writing stuff because I, I, you know, Basically, correspondence courses, you can go like a, a kind of like a business, you know, management, business administrative route, or you can go like a liberal arts humanities type of route. And, you know, anybody that's done like liberal arts humanities, they know it's a lot of writing, a lot of reading and a lot of writing. So I, I kind of went like the liberal arts humanities route, and I started doing a lot of reading and a lot of writing. You know, now I was kind of taking that talent, you know, that I, that I had started as a teenager with just like songs and poetry you know, and I was turning into essays, you know, in book reports and stuff like that. But also at the same time, at every prison you're in, you know, everybody has to have a job. You know, you can work like in facilities where you're like a, you know, a plumber or you fix stuff or whatever, carpentry, or, you know, you can work in the kitchen, you know, you can work on the compound, you can work in Unicor, that's like the prison factory. So there's all these different places. So I, I was always working in recreation because, you know, I used to work out and I, I was real athletic. I always played a lot of sports, even in there. And um, so I started doing my job. I started like working in the intramural sport leagues and I would play in them. But at the same time, I would like keep the stats for like the basketball game. You know, when I first went in prison, I was like the dude, you know, keeping the score and keeping the rebounds and the points, you know, steals. And then we would compile the stats and we would post them up like in recreation. So people could see, you know, just like they do in the NBA in college, you know, who the best players were by their stats. So as I was doing this for the different sports, I was doing it for like softball at Manchester, you know, and prison sports are like huge, you know, that's a lot of people, they play sports, everybody comes out to watch the games, that's kind of like the entertainment. So, uh, you know, and you also, they, you play by units, so, you know, you come out, there's like a pride thing, like you come out and when your unit plays, you know, you come out and root for your unit against another unit. So I was compiling these stats and as different dudes would come from different compounds and they would see that I was the one doing these stats and compiling the stats and posting them up on the board, they used to tell me, they're like, hey, man, why don't you do like a sports newsletter? They'd be like, man, when I was in Terry Hut, they had this dude, he used to do a sports newsletter. And I'd be like, you know, what are you talking about? And then they they bring me copies, like, because some of them, they might have got written about in the sports newsletter, so they would keep them, because those were like, 
you know, like their newspaper clippings, right? So they would bring them to me and they would show me and I would check them out and I'd be like, oh man, I'd be like, this is cool, right? And then at the same time, I was getting like the USA Today newspaper, you know, every, every day, you know, because I, I was big into sports too, following sports. So I would get the new USA Today newspaper and like in the, in the mid nineties, you know, there was this big reporter, you know, that Scott, you know, you guys probably know because you're my age, but you know, Peter Vesey, he's like this big basketball dude, you know, and, and another one was uh, Dick Vitale. He was like the big college dude. U of and D. Then you saw these, Dick Vitale yeah. coached the U of D Mercy. Coached the University of Detroit Mercy and their, <laughs> and their the Pistons too. And the Pistons. Yeah, but he had a really, a lot of success with the, right, right. the Detroit Titans, not so much with the Pistons. <laughs> right. The, the, his, the Detroit yeah, so. Pistons job getting fired drove him into broadcasting, right. which is where he became an icon. Right. Yeah, so so these dudes, like back then, when, that was when USA Today first came out too, you know, probably like late 80s, early 90s. So these dudes were doing columns, right? And they would have these little columns, like the Peter Vesey, he'd have his NBA column, and, and you know, Dickie V would have his college basketball column. And, you know, I, I used to read these columns, and I was like addicted to these columns, right? And so... As I'm reading these columns in the paper every day, and then these dudes are showing me these newsletters, and I'm real involved in the sports intramural leagues, anyhow, keeping the stats, you know, I kind of got the idea. I'm like, man, I'm going to, you know, kind of replicate what these dudes are showing me that other guys are doing, you know. So I started doing like these little sports columns, you know, for the different leagues. You know, I would do it for basketball, I would do it for softball, you know, and then I would do it for soccer, and I would even find like a, a Spanish dude to translate it. So my soccer one would be in English and Spanish, you know, because mm. most people playing soccer are like Mexican, Colombians, but you know, there's a lot of Jamaicans too. So we would, they would translate it and we would have it in both languages. And uh, that's really how I, I started becoming a writer because I was learning to write by taking the college courses. And then I was like actually practicing it on the compound, you know, and then I, that kind of turned into my job. So every new prison I went to, I would take like my sports columns you know, that were posted on the, the board and recreation and on all the bulletin boards and all the units, you know, and I would bring it and I'd be like, hey, man, you don't got a, a writer here? I do these sports columns and boom, they would hire me. And it was always like a, like they got different grades of pay and they're like grade five to grade one, grade five being maybe like 521, 525 a month, you know, $5.25 a month, that's grade five, you know, to like a uh, grade one where you might make like a hundred bucks a month. So, you know, I developed this skill as a writer and it also worked to my advantage because every new place I went to, I could just take my clips. And most of the time they didn't have a writer or they didn't have someone, a writer, you know, who was like, you know, getting a college education who could really write. So I could like move right into like the grade one position, you know, and get a nice salary in prison, you know, which always helps, you know, in there. Cause most people make like, like I said, five twenty five, twenty bucks a month. So that's kind of how like the writing started. And, you know, I was doing this from like 93 you know, to 99, you know, and I continued taking the college courses. I got my degree from Penn State in liberal arts. Then I enrolled in uh, University of Iowa to get my bachelor's degree. And this was another stroke of luck, which, you know, just my parents found the program and sent it to me because I was looking for programs. You could take correspondence courses from anywhere, you know, it's all through the mail. But I was looking for specific degree ones where you could get a degree through a correspondence course. So my parents found this one at the University of Iowa and the University of Iowa, I don't, I don't know what it's called. It might be called the Lionhawk, but th they're like known for like this famous writing program. You know, it's called like the Lionhawk program. You know, it's, it's like, you know, it's like a world renowned like writing program that they're known for University of Iowa. And I couldn't enroll in that program because I was correspondence courses. You know, you had to go to the campus, but a lot of the teachers, instructors, 
that were in that line hop program, like they would do extra work for correspondence courses. And so I was getting like the same instructors, you know, I was getting the benefit of the instructors from this famous writing program, even though I wasn't enrolled in it because I was taking correspondence courses. So, you know, this, this progressed, I was learning to write better. I was getting good instruction through the correspondence courses from, you know, like really prestigious, you know, school and instructors. I was writing on the compound. I was getting the recognition from my peers in prison. And then, uh, what were, if if I can interrupt you for a moment, Seth, what, what were some of the writers that inspired you as you were taking these uh, classes? Oh, I was big in the, uh, you know, when I first got in, um, I think I talked about last time, like how, like when I got the IDs and different stuff like that, I would read like 25 books, you know, to learn, you know, yeah. cause I'm the type of person when I want to learn something, I just read is right. everything I can. I kind of my own plan. So when I first came into prison, I started reading like all the, all the prison books, you know, I was reading like, uh, in in the belly of the beast by jack henry abbott soledad brother George oh, oh yeah that's classic yeah yeah all the uh mamia abdul jamal like, yeah you know censorship on death row yeah right like, that's all classic prison author yeah i read all like eldridge cleaver you great know, stuff all the way, yeah yeah all the way back to like some of the stuff like the uh the one duty goes all the way back to like the 30s or the 40s he had like live from death row uh oh i think that was mamia abdul jamal but there was this other dude i think his name was like I don't know, Clive Klesserman or something. It was like cell block something. It's like a real famous old prison book from like the thirties or forties. So I, I immersed myself in all these books. And uh, even like a more current one was like from the eighties was this dude, uh, Danny Redhog Martin. You know, he used to write for the San Francisco Chronicle from Lompoc prison. He was doing a column and then they compiled all of his uh, writings into a book called committing journalism. And so I was reading all these books. I was basically reading all these books to kind of, school myself on prison. But, you know, at the same time I was doing this, I was taking the college classes and I started writing, you know, about the sports stuff. You know, it kind of inspired me. I was like, man, if these dudes can do it from prison, I was like, why can't I do it? And also I kind of wanted to, because uh, I was reading their stuff and, and their stories, although it was in prison, it wasn't matching my story that I was living, like in the feds. You know, it, it was different type of time. So I kind of wanted to show the time that I was doing and so that's kind of inspired me to write. And then even my first book, Prison Stories, it started out as a creative writing course for, through the University of Iowa, where, you know, I had to write like 30 pages. So, you know, I, I wrote the first 30 pages, you know, over like a three credit course, which probably, you know, took me like six to nine months because it was correspondence. And then, you know, the, the instructor, you know, gave me so much good feedback and, and like they were so positive, you know, about my writing that I eventually turn that 30 pages into my first book. So it was, it was, you know, can you imagine, uh, Scott, um, when my, uh, students complained about having to write a 10 page paper, <laughs> I'm going to say, yeah, well, Seth had to write a fucking 30 page paper <laughs> while he was, in, while he was incarcerated. <laughs> while he was incarcerated. <laughs> so I don't have a lot of sympathy for <laughs> students who can't handle writing a 10 page. Uh, they could say paper. to you though, well, he had more time. <laughs> yeah, no, that, yeah, that's, <laughs> that, that's, that's fair. But, um, Seth, let me ask you, what were, what, what would be the reaction of, so like you're, you're educating yourself, you're, you're, you're absorbing these classic works of literature, uh, becoming more socially conscious, educating yourself. How do some of these like hardened criminals view that? Like you, you're around, you're around gangsters, drug lords, some pretty tough dudes. Um, how do they view that? Like a person who's 
trying to better themselves and become more aware of, of either sort of sociology of the situation. Is that looked down upon? Is that, is it neutral? Do they appreciate that? What is, I, I generally don't, don't know. No, it's, it's kind of like, uh, it's kind of like religion, right? Like, like religion in there. Like a lot of dudes, you know, that, I mean, some people like they go into religion, like, you know, they become Christian or they become Muslim or they become whatever. It's, it's, it's almost like, uh, like a lot of people do for protection, but it's also like, you know, when people go into religion, it's like in, in the joint, they get a pass, you know? So it's like, if they got, you know, if all the white boys got to go out on the yard, right? Like, it's like, okay, you might, might be a race, riot, It might be this might be whatever. So all the white boys, you all, everybody got to go on the yard. So the guys that are Christian, like they might have church services or stuff. So they're kind of like, excused from that you know because it's like oh so it was kind of the same thing with the people involved in education you know I, and i wouldn't say you know like you were looked down upon you know i mean you know there's always going to be some people might look down upon but it's almost like you've got to pass but another thing that came into it for me is because you know i was always in the in the in the education department or you know what they call the law library you know i was always on the typewriter you know, because I was always, you know, having to type up my college papers, you know, and, and send them off through the mail. And, uh, you know, we didn't have no word processors. It was like, you know, a typewriter. So, you know, you had to sometimes you had to type a lot of times or we would use white out to fix stuff or whatever. But I was in there a lot, you know, and people see you in there a lot and they think you're doing legal work or something like that. So a lot of guys and then I played sports. So I knew a lot of guys, you know, I had like a real, you know, I, I fucked with the blacks the Mexicans and the whites, you know, I fucked with everybody. So I had like a wide range of people. So people were familiar with me. So when they would come up and, you know, they, they would ask me about legal stuff, but I'd be like, you know, I don't really do no casework or stuff like that. But then they would ask me about like stuff there, like what they call like administrative remedies, you know, like if you have, you know, like if, you know, your counselor won't move you into the cell you want to move to, or if you're trying to get a transfer closer to home, or, you know, like if they wrote you a shot and you were in the hole and they took like all your commissary and phone privileges and you're trying to file appeals and fight and try to get them back. So you know, people kept asking me, like, if I could type it up for them, you know, because a lot of the stuff you got to type it up, they don't want it handwritten. So, you know, they have these forms and, you know, they might write it and then I would type it up. But after I did that for a couple of years, then I started being known as a guy, you know, they could get results. So, you know, that, that also like gave me a pass from a lot of stuff, you know, because I would help. I would like use my time to help a lot of people. I would type up stuff. You know, at first I would kind of do it, you know, for free or just looking out. But, you know, after a couple years of doing it and after I got good at it, you know, filing these grievances and administrative remedies, you know, then, you know, I started charging people. So that was like another hustle, you know, because like someone would write me to write an administrative remedy or like appeal a sanction or a shot that they got. And I would say, well, that's three books of stamps, you know, which is basically like it was like six dollars a book back then. So, you know, basically like eighteen dollars, you know, I'd be like, yeah, I can do it. I, I can file appeal for you. But, you know. But not this is not for legal stuff in court. This is like all institutional stuff, yeah. what they call the administrative remedy process, or they call it grievances, you know, complaints like within the institution, within the Bureau of Prison. So, you know, by my third year in Manchester, you know, like 96, like I'm already, you know, I, I'm an ace at that because, you know, I'm, I'm taking the college classes. I'm, I'm writing the basketball and, and sports newsletters. And, you know, I'm becoming a really, really good writer. So, you know, everybody's coming to me because I have a way with words, you know, I have the gift of gab on paper, you know, and I can write these things and I'm, I'm seeing results, you know, like people are winning, you know, sometimes people would get these sanctions removed 
and they would tell other people, oh yeah, Seth did it. So then, you know, like more people are coming to me, you know, they got shots and they got all these things because they used to do vicious sanctions on people. It's like people that got like dirty urines, like in the nineties, like they would take their phone for like five years, you know, and your phone is like, you know, besides writing letters or getting a visit, your phone is like your only means of communications. And these dudes, you know, they would get like, you know, a couple dirty urines and, the, you know, like repeat dirty urines, you know, like on the second or third one, they would take their phone for five years. It was just like unfucking believable. Like you're going to take their phone for five years. So you so, were a real resource. You were a resource for these, the people in these facilities for like more, for like more humane conditions. Yeah. I mean, I, I made myself valuable. You know, I, I, I did. I made myself valuable. And, and like I'm saying, I, I'm not going to lie. And say I did it, you know, for all altruistic, or how do you say that? Word? Altruistic, yeah. Yeah, but, you know, I mean, it was, in a way, it, it was a way to fit in, you know, it was a way to survive, it was a way to get recognition, it was a way to be accepted, you know, so, I mean, it was all that. So, you know, so, some of it for doing it, you know, because, I mean, if you're doing paperwork, you know, for like, you know, the, the shot caller for the white boys, or, you know, like one of the big black gang leaders or Mexican gang leaders, then you're on the compound talking to them and you're like giving them stuff and they're meeting with you and you're talking to them and you're like advising them. And then like other people see that. And then they're like, you know, it's like, just like I said, when I first came in, like I, I was around the Serenos, I was around the mafia guys, you know, I was around my homies from Virginia, you know, so people are like, who are this dude? So it's like, you know, like how Scott said, you know, about the currency, you know, so like my currency, like my value is just like, just keeps going up and it keeps going up. And, it, and it's like in this prison world, you know, in this nether world of corruption and violence, you know, even though I'm not like a, a tough guy, you know, cause that's the only way you can get, you know, currency in there. Most of the time it's like, you know, by bringing in drugs, it's like being violent. It's like being a gang leader, you get respect. So I was using, or, you know, a lot of dudes that play sports, you get respect cause you're like, you're a good athlete. You know, people like to watch you. You know, or some dudes like they're hustlers, you know, they they steal stuff from the kitchen and like they work in the butcher shop and they supply a whole bunch of people, you know, with meat and stuff like that. So you get respect for these side hustles. So I I was getting respect, you know, for this stuff because I, I could file, I could like beat the man. I could file against the man and I could beat him. And I could win people their phone time back. I could win people their visits back. You know, I could win people their commissary. I could win, you know, they would take like uh like you get good time days in the feds every year. Like back, you get like 54 days a year, right? Because the feds, you got to do 85% of your time. And like someone would get whacked like a dirty urine and they would take like five years good time. Wow. You know, like, like that. They would take, you know, like they use just like that. They lose like, you know, half a year, over half a year, good time. What would be the, the example, the dirty urine, right? We're talking about marijuana or it could be anything. Any, any type of drugs, any type of drugs. Yeah, yeah. Dirty urine type of drugs. And, uh, you know, I would win people good. I would win their good time back. So, you know, I, I was making myself like a resource and, and a value. And like I say, you know, it was, it was for my own purposes too, you know, to get that respect and get that recognition and get that acceptance. But it's like, you know, in there, you just got, you got to find your place, you know, like, like they say, you know, like, you know, get in where you fit in, or they're saying like, find your lane, you know, and that's what I was doing. I, I was kind of finding my lane and, you know, I'm a big dude. I'm an athletic dude, but I've never been like a violent dude. You know, I've never been a malicious dude. You know, I got in fights and stuff, but I'm not the type of person. Like, if I get you down, I'm I'm gonna let you back up. I'm not gonna jump on you and start beating the shit out of you like a lot of these real malicious dudes. You know, it's just not in me. I'm yeah. not. I'm not like an evil malicious dude. So, 
you know, and, and not to say, you know, I, I could hold my own. I would fight, but I want to go looking for stuff. So, you know, I was I was adding value to that culture, you know, and, and you know, like basically like like through my writing and through my brain. You know, I was adding, you know, like some people, gang leaders, you and usually a lot of people think like gang leaders are the biggest, toughest dudes. But a lot of times gang leaders are the smartest dudes, and they might be like the littlest, smartest dudes. And they're like the dudes, you know, you hear about these dudes all the time, like the street legends that I started writing about. There's these outsized legends and you think these dudes are like these big dudes and then you meet them and they're like these little, you know, five foot two dudes yep. because it's their brains, you know. So I was adding value to the prison culture and the prison community with my brain, you know, with my intelligence. Seth, have you ever, uh, are you familiar with the uh, Federal Bureau of Narcotics Black Book? Um, it's what is it, like six, 700 pages. It's a great resource for researchers. Have you ever heard of, it's, it's, uh, the, the FBI. Harry Anslinger. Harry Anslinger. Yeah, yeah, right. And they're all from the, the fifties and what, early sixties that, that, um, yep. and it, and just not to digress too much, but when I first, that was, became public, um, reading that and you're reading about like these vicious mafioso they're killers. All five, three. They're all five, five, yeah. 150 pounds, 104. And you're thinking like, yeah, totally like deconstructed. Like, right. You think they're larger than life, you know, six, six, one, six, five killers. And uh, a lot of them were just little, little Italian dudes. <laughs> but like, you're right. Well, he, well you know, well, I, I know someone that Seth's written uh, pretty extensively about who I was surprised to learn was so small is, uh, you know, Preem, Kenny Supreme McGriff. Uh, he's only yeah. about five six. Oh, really? Five, seven, I, I didn't yeah. know that. Little dude, he has like this outsized legend. I mean, you know, he's in he's in shape. He got some muscle. Yeah. But I mean, he's like he's like five six. And and when you meet that dude, I was on the compound with him for two years in SCI Gilmer. He actually, you know, he actually like he gave me his blessing for the book. You know, I did the story on him in Street Legends Volume One. You know, I wrote about his whole crew and Supreme Team, my book Supreme Team, and I did the uh, the two Don Diva articles you know, where we interviewed him and he gave me his blessing for all that. But like, when you meet this dude, man, this dude is just like, I mean, the dude is a, a gentleman, man. He's like, like I always said, like, and so like some of the mob dudes were like that all too, that I met in there. They were just like gentlemen gangsters. I mean, some of the mob dudes and some of the drug lords, I mean, they were just like, you know, crass, violent <laughs> criminals that would, you know, just assume, you know, rip you off for $5 is fucking stab you. But, you know, like some of these dudes, you know, like like Supreme, I mean, this dude was like the perfect gentleman. But, you know, I mean, if you crossed him, you crossed him, you knew what was coming. I mean, the dude was gangster. But, you know, he didn't go out looking for trouble. He didn't violate anybody unless, you know, they tried him or called for it. And like some of the mob dudes I was like with who uh, I was with Michael Perna, who he was with the, the New Jersey faction of the Lucchese, Lucchese family. Yeah. He was a yeah, he was like the consigliore. And, you know, they, they had that. uh they had that one movie about his uh, his co-defendant, Fat Jack, like when they went to trial. Right, that Jackie, was uh, uh, Jackie uh, Vin Dinorcio. Diesel. Vin Diesel. Vin Diesel played yeah, him in Vin the movie. Diesel oh, yeah, yeah. It, Find, like, it was called Find Me Guilty. Wasn't it like a comedy or something? It was like yeah. half a comedy, yeah. yeah. Because yeah, it was he based... represented himself. Yeah. He represented himself. But this dude, Mikey, Mikey Perna, he's at, he actually died. He actually died in the last year. He got out. He'd been out for a couple I years. I think he died of COVID. But, uh, yeah, I think he did. Yeah, yeah. last I think last, last spring, yeah. Yeah. But, uh. You know, some dudes from his neighborhood, actually, they text me on Instagram and they told me, you know, when he died. But but this dude, I was in Ferritin with him, right? I was in Ferritin with him from like 2001, 2004. He was like in my unit. This dude was the perfect gentleman. I mean, vicious dude, if, if, it, if it was called for, <laughs> you know, if somebody tried him. But look, this dude, every weekend, this dude 
would cook for like 20 people, right? He would make pasta. They used to call it gravy. You know, they call it gravy. Yeah, the, 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 the real, real Italians <laughs> call spaghetti and meat sauce or spaghetti and uh, sauce. They call it uh, macaroni and gravy. Yeah, gravy. So he would cook the pasta and gravy for like 20 people every weekend. You know, when I first came in, you know, he would he would hit me off. You know what I'm saying? Because I, I was, you know, had Italian name and stuff like that. You know, so the Italian dudes were always, you know, look out for your own, you know, whatever. But then, you know, I was in a unit, you know, so I, I actually started helping him. Like some of his other guys, like he had some of his crew members from the street there. And I would like, we would have these big, uh, you know, like like the big, uh, you know, buckets, like five-gallon buckets, right? Like a kettle. So we, yeah, we would have these big five-gallon buckets and we would have a stinger. You know what a stinger is? It's something like you plug in. It's like this little metal thing that they made, you know, in the electric shop. It's it's all contraband. And you put it in the water and it heats up the water. They call it a stinger. You know, you can plug it in. So we would, we would, he would get all the uh, pasta, you know, he'd pay somebody to bring it from the chow hall. Cause a lot of the places, you know, they didn't even sell pasta on the uh, commissary. So he would get them to smuggle it out of the chow hall and you'd pay him. And then me and this Irish guy, this other Irish guy named Mikey, who was actually in his crew. You know, when it was on his case, we would go in his cell and we would cook this pasta. We would cook like three, five gallon buckets of pasta with these stingers, man. And we would just cook. I mean, it was probably like 15 pounds of pasta. <laughs> and we would do this every weekend. I did this every weekend for two years, you know, and then they, they had other people. They would cut up the garlic just like in Goodfellas. You know, they cut up with a little razor and he'd have like he usually had he had a Puerto Rican celly and he would always cook the sauce because he was like a wizard, you know, with the gravy. And, you know, a lot of times it didn't have meat or nothing because it was hard to get the meat. But, you know, and then we'd have like the Parmesan cheese. And every weekend, man, every Sunday, and he even used to, you know, because he would have dudes come from every unit. It would be different people. You know, it would be some of the same guys, like maybe about five of the same guys in the unit every weekend. But we were the guys helping to cook it, you know, or the guys helping smuggle it. But then he would invite all the other Italian dudes from the different units. And it would be like a rotating crew. And they would all come in. And they would come in the TV area room and he would push all the tables together. He had all the tables reserved and everybody respected. And he, he had so much respect, like he could even go to the cops who ever worked like that Sunday afternoon night. And he'd be like, you know, this is my thing. You know, all my guys are going to come because, you know, you, you know, the rules are you're not supposed to go on somebody else's unit. That's like out of bounds. You can get a shot. So he would like smooth it over with the cops. I mean, I don't know. Maybe he was paying them or doing something for them or whatever. I don't know the you know, details, but the cops will let all these dudes, all these mafia dudes and Italians come in from other units. And he did this every weekend. This dude did this, you know, and, and like, he would pay for it all. Like in, in prison. I mean, he lived like a King, but he treated everybody around him like a King, you know? And, uh, yeah, this dude, like I say, man, I mean, he was just a gentleman. Another story about Mikey Perna, you know, they, in the feds, they do these fines. Like when you get sentenced, they, they find you and they find you like um, these mafia dudes, they find them a lot, you know, they'll find them like, you know, 20,000, a hundred thousand. And then when you go in prison, they have this thing, it's called the FRP program. So, you know, it's financial responsibility program where they try to get you to pay back these fines, you know, and everybody's like not trying to pay the fines, whatever money you have coming in, you want it for yourself, you know, so you, so you can spend money and live good in there. So they, you know, that it's always like a battle. And one time, you know, at this time, you know, I'd been down probably like 10 years and, and Mike had been down probably, you know, maybe a little longer, like 12 years. He'd come down from USP Allenwood and USP Lewisburg to, you know, drop to the medium at SCI Ferriton. And he was showing me like the paperwork. We were both sitting out the counselor's office waiting to go in to talk to the counselor. And, and he was showing me the stuff. He was like, man, come here, look at this, right? 
He's like, look at this fine. He's like, I've been paying this fine for like 12 years. And he's like, this fine is like more than what it started, you know, because they, they add interest to it. Right. And so it was real funny. I'm, I'm looking at it and he's showing me, he's like, look at this shit, man. He's like, you, can you believe this shit? And it was like, he paid, you know, not that much, but maybe he paid like a hundred dollars every month, you know, and the, and the fine was like, you know, 10 or 15,000 more than what it started, you know, cause, cause they keep adding interest. And Mikey Prona, he turned to me, he's like, can you believe this shit? He's like, they're doing to me what I do to motherfuckers on the street. <laughs> yeah. It's like that's crazy. And he was like, he was outraged. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> the, the, the feds were doing this to him. He was like, I can't believe these motherfuckers. Like they're putting the vig on him. Yeah. I remember in a casino, he's like, uh, you mean the money we're stealing, they're stealing <laughs> from us. <laughs> And he's pissed off about it. It's called leakage. Right. Leakage my balls. I want my money back. Right. right. So what are some of the what are some of the other uh notable projects you want to tell us about stuff like like uh you know well, first, Supreme and like Well first tell us how how many books have you published? Yeah. Uh twenty two. Wow. Wow. That, prolific. Uh, prolific. Right. And uh, can, will you give uh some of the audience your uh, you know your favorites and, and where to go get them all? Yeah, like um Prison Stories, that was my first book, and, and that's, you know, been probably, like, one of my best-selling. So that came out in 2005, and uh, you can order that on my website, sethferrante.com, you know, and I'll do autograph copy or whatever. And also, like, Amazon, you know, you can get it, like, you know, ebook, Kindle, you know, print, whatever. It's even audiobook on Amazon. And then another one of my other big sellers is the Supreme Team book I did, you know, about, uh, you know, Kenneth Supreme McGriff and his crew. And um, that's like, you can get that on my site too. And you can also, that's an audio book on Amazon. It's an ebook and it's a print book. So those are two of my biggest, you know, I also, I got Street Legends volume one and volume two, where I chronicle people like, you know, Wayne Perry, Frank Matthews, uh, Peanut King, um, the Junior Black Mafia, Wayne Perry, Pistol Pete Rolock, you know, Sex, Money, Murder, a whole bunch of different dudes. And, um, when you say Junior Black Mafia, are you talking about the Philadelphia guys, or who are you talking yes. about? Yeah, yeah, Junior Black Mafia, Aaron Jones. Did you read? Did Not you the read? Black yeah, Mafia. so right. Just to clarify for people, or Seth can clarify the the black the Philly Black Mafia was the 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 Black Brothers Incorporated that ran the streets in the seventies, sixties, and seventies, and then by the mid to late eighties, uh, AJ Jones, Aaron Jones, who was the uh, Nudie Robert Nudie Mims was one of the original. Uh, Philly Black Mafia guys, he mentored A.J. Jones, and A.J. Jones then started what was known as the Junior Black Mafia in the crack era, and the uh, the Black Brothers, a.k.a. Philly Black Mafia, was in the heroin era. Yeah, they were more like in the 60s. It was like, a J- it was yeah, like, yeah. It was but like I mean, the JV version of the Philly Black Mafia. So the, the guys that you were writing about, because some of those guys were tight with Skinny Joey, weren't they? they bo- the- both of them are. Both of them, okay. So that I didn't, I didn't. Well, the, uh, the original Philly Black Mafia was close to uh, Long John, Scar, uh, Long John Martirano, right, right, and some of the Scarfo guys. But then uh, JBM, Junior Black Mafia, yeah, Joey has been and, and Joey Merlino from Philadelphia. The earliest guys it was with Bruno that they were right. they were yeah close with. Sorry, we digress. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to check that out. I didn't. I'm 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 embarrassed that I didn't know that you you wrote that book. I'm I'm really interested in that. Yeah, well, it's it's just one chapter in my in my Street Legends Volume One book. Yeah, no, that's you cool. Know, I got it. Like, yeah, and then I got you know I got a book on like Alpo and Rich Porter. I got a book on Fat Cat and Pappy Mason. I got a book on uh, Rayful Edmond. 
And then, you know, I got, I got a whole bunch of other, you know, books on, on different dudes, but mostly like, uh, it's mostly like prison, prison life stuff, prison gangs. And then most of my books really, I'd say, I'd say 60, 70% of my book are about like crack era, crack era gangsters. Cause reason I started writing those books is I was locked up with a lot of those dudes. And if I wasn't with the main dudes, I was like with their co-defendants, right? Like the dudes on their case. And, and when I first came in, like another thing I did, like, you know, cause you know, you're on the compound with like these mafia dudes, like in the early nineties, I was with all these mafia dudes. And then I was with like all these Colombian drug lords. Right. And, and, you know, on the compound, you hear all like the, you know, the, the myths and the legends and like the jail cell talk. But, you know, I, I was like curious. I was like, you know, I heard the jail cell talk and, you know, this dude might live on my unit, but, you know, I wanted to get the real book. So, you know, I, I would tell my mom, like, order me the books. And this is like pre-Amazon, pre-internet, you know, so she would go out to the bookstore and order me the books and send them. So I was reading all these books, you know, like Michael Perna, there's, there's a book like on them about, uh, I forget what it's called, but it's something like, you know, how the New Jersey mob beat the feds. Oh, know, that's uh, the feds. Jersey Boys or something like that? Is that what that yeah, book is Jersey called? Yeah, Jersey Boys. Yeah, Jersey Boys. Yeah. So, you know, I read that when I first got into the compound with Michael Perna, I'm like, oh, they're like, yeah, there's a book about him. So I ordered the book and I read it. But I was doing that all because, you know, I was reading all the books about Colombian drug lords, all the books about the mafia guys. And there was tons of books about these guys. So then like, you know, mid 95, like 95, that's like when gangster rap is like huge, you know, like all the gangster rap stuff, you know, from like New York, you know, LA, DC, gangster rap is like the biggest thing on the earth. So, you know, I played basketball. I used to be like the only white boy playing basketball, you know, with all the brothers, you know, and I was into rap music. I grew up on rap music. So, you know, since I was familiar with them, I would be like a lot of times the only white boy, like in the, you know, the, the room when they're watching like MTV raps or like what they would call like eventually the BET room. And I would be like the only white dude and I would be in there and, you know, they'd have all the different rappers, you know, name dropping these people. And then I hear like their homeboys saying, Oh yeah, that's my homeboy. Yeah. This blah, 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 this blah, blah, that. And they tell like the legends, you know, from the street, you know, the jail cell mythology. And they'd be like, Oh yeah, that dude's over there on this block. You know, that, that's how, like, when I when I first heard about Supreme, they're like, oh, yeah, he's, he's over there. He, he's on the compound. And this was, like, when all the 50 Cent was talking about him, and there was all this uproar, and he was in all the papers. And, uh, you know, and, and I was curious. So I would, like, reach out to my mom or, like, my wife. You know, by this time, you know, early 2000s, late 90s, there was, like, Amazon. And they would ser do searches for me, and they could find very little books on these guys. You know, like, some of the books, there was a dude did that, the book you mentioned, The Black Brothers Incorporated. I, I forget the author's name. Sean, you know, Sean, I read that uh, book. Sean Patrick Yeah, he's a, he's a Penn State prof. I We're going to get him on uh, the OG podcast. I love podcast. that book. I, I talk, I love, that's one of my favorite yeah, books. Awesome Me book. too. I talked to him a couple weeks ago. And then there's this other book that uh, they wrote about Fat Cat's case by this his name. It was called Cop Shot by Mike uh, McClary, right? But there was very little books, you know, on, on all these black gangsters. So that's kind of how I got, you know, to write about these black gangsters because I was like, Man, I was like real curious about these dudes. I wanted to read the books about them and there was no books. So I was like, you know, I was like locked up with a lot of these dudes. So I was like, you know, I'm going to write the books. You know, and I started, you know, going through a lot of them. That makes, that's that makes how, like, sense. That whole book I mean, I think um, that's something that uh, we can relate to because I, the, the book I wrote, I wanted to read something that was about the Italian mafia in the early 1900s, not, because a lot of what you read is about the Purple Gang, which is fascinating, but I wanted m more on the Italians. And there really wasn't um, a book exclusively about that. So I 
said, well, then I, I guess I'll write it. And I know, like, with Scott's Motor City Mafia, no. there wasn't anything right. about the Detroit Mafia, so he wrote. So he, I got a book it. deal when I was 29. <laughs> yeah, so, right. I mean, I think, I, I really, that's inspiring. I think you're, the, the, the way you approach it is, like, uh, you know, if it's not out there, then I'm going to write it. Yep. I, I think that's pretty inspiring. So what is, what is the future? We're, we're getting close on uh, uh, running out of time here. What's the future hold for... Seth Ferrante, what do you got going on right now? What do you want? He's become a documentarian. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, think he's he's kind of transitioning mediums. Is that uh, accurate, Seth? Yeah, you know, when when I hit the street, like in 2015, you know, I, I already had it in my mind, like you know, I wanted to come out. You know, I would I wanted to make films, and um, you know, I did. You know, I met Sean Reck, You know, and and you know, I met Scott, and we made White Boy. You know, we started making that like probably, you know, like around 2016. That's when that all started. You know, and it finally came out 2018. And, uh, you know, the, my main thing in that, you know, when when, when I first kind of, you know, brought that idea to Sean Reck was, you know, I, I once I met him, I knew he'd, he'd won like he'd done like 200 Crime Stoppers show at that time, you know, that were on the networks. And he'd won like nine regional Emmys like in Ohio. So, you know, once I once he flew me up there and I talked to him, we started discussing about stuff and I threw the, the white boy uh, documentary idea at him. You know, my main thing was I was like, dude, I want you to I want to learn how to make film. I want you to train me. I want you to mentor me. So that was like my biggest thing, you know, other than getting Rick out, you know, my you know, it, it was a two pronged thing. I wanted to get Rick out because I, I wrote about him, you know, in his case and then justice of his case, you know, even while I was in prison and when I got out. So when I met Sean, I was like, look. I want you to mentor me. I want you to teach me. So that was like the deal we made. You know, he was going to bring me in all the shoots. He was going to involve me, you know, in, in the whole process. So, you know, which I'm eternally grateful for him that because he basically, you know, taught me how to make documentaries. You know, I knew how to tell stories, but making documentaries is a whole different thing from just, you know, writing an article, which I think Scott would attest to too, as, as he's done more stuff, you know. But, uh, you know, since then, right after that, I, I wrote this story for Vice called about um it was called the people who walk the most dangerous streets in st louis and it's it's basically this group of violence interrupters and they call themselves nightlife and um they go out and they walk the streets like on thursday friday and saturday nights they walk the streets from like 10 p.m to 2 a.m in like you know the hot spots like you know the reasons why st louis is known as you know one of the murder capital of the world every year you know why they're always in the top five and they walk these really dangerous streets and so I did an article for Vice on him. And at the same time, I was, I was, you know, involved in the white boy project with Sean and Scott. And I was learning, you know, to make documentaries. And I was like, you know what, I, I need something local. I need something cheap, you know, because I didn't have any investors. You know, I didn't have a big budget. You know, I didn't have, you know, that much money to, to throw at this documentary. And, uh, you know, I started following these people around, you know, with cameras. Like, I got a camera crew. And, like, over two years, man, we, we recorded them, like, walking the streets, you know, and, and kind of stopping the violence. But, you know, they also do stuff. You know, they, they give out a lot of food, you know, to the homeless people. You know, they carry Narcan. They try to, you know, get people in rehab, you know, the homeless people in shelters. And they just kind of, like, kind of go in and check on the street people and, and make sure they're okay. That's what they call it, a presence of ministry. So, I recorded this for two years. You know, we were going out every weekend, but sometimes we brought like once or twice a month. So we had all this footage. And then, uh, you know, it's taken a lot longer than I thought, you know, but finally, you know, like we probably stopped filming, you know, like, like 2018. And now finally, three years later, I almost got a film, you know, it's about 85, 90% done. So the working title of that right now is, is called Nightlife. And, you know, that, that might be subject to change, but 
it's basically a documentary about this one man, the Reverend Kim McCoy, what he's doing to like kind of stop the violence and save his community. But at the same time, it follows his story. It looks at all these, you know, overarching issues that have been plaguing America and that have really come to the forefront, you know, the last year, you know, with like the police brutality, the George Floyd killing, you know, the worldwide Black Lives Matter riots, you know, and it encompasses all these things. Because I think you know, St. Louis is where Ferguson started, you know, and if you look at, you know, the current Black Lives Matters, I mean, all that stuff started in Ferguson when I was in the halfway house, when I first came home from prison in 2014. So, and this guy, the Reverend Kim McCoy was in Ferguson, you know, he he was one of the leaders in, of Ferguson and that movement. And then he branched off into his own thing, nightlife. So I kind of tell his story while at the same time, you know, telling this larger story that's, you know, at the forefront of the national consciousness right now. And, that, that's what I got going on right now. You know, my next big project that's about to come up that, you know, hopefully, you know, by the by the fall or the winter, you know, it's going to be on a streaming network, you know, but I still got to, you know, I'm going through the process of finding a sales agent and, and trying to place it somewhere. And, uh, you know, other than that, I got two other projects that I'm working on. One is, uh, it's called like the secret history of the LSD trade you know, where I've already done a, a, a bunch of filming, like before COVID hit, I went out to San Francisco and we flew a whole bunch of people in and um, I actually filmed, there's there's a place out there, you know, like, uh, you know, right down by Hayden Ashbury, it's called like the uh, LSD Museum, where like you go in and it's just like, they got like hundreds and hundreds of sheets of blotter acid, you know, that they just took and they used for art. So I, I actually got permission from the guy who owns that to shoot there, I interviewed him. I flew a lot of other, you know, people I was locked up with, you know, and older outlaws, you know, involved in the LSD trade and the Grateful Dead and did a lot of interviews. So I'm about to get it, start shooting that again. Is that, is that overlap with, uh, sorry to interrupt, does that overlap with Operation Paperclip? Do you go into any of that, like the, the sort of the government, like started the research and development on LSD? Yeah, that, we go all the way back to the beginning because, you know, all the way back in the beginning, this doc, it starts in the 60s. You know, in the 60s, LSD was still legal. You know, we actually interviewed the son and the daughter of, there's this guy named Dr. John Beersford, and he was the one of the guys that got the, uh, he got like one of the first grams of LSD from the, uh, I think it's called like the Sandoz Laboratories. You know, and he, he like got it under, uh, you know, like medical purposes, you know, because it was still legal then. So he got like the first, like the first gram of LSD that was actually, you know, sent into the U.S. from this laboratory, like in Germany or Switzerland or whatever, and he got it sent in. And that's kind of how, like, you know, the chemists here, like, looked at it and replicated it. And that's kind of how, like, the LSD trade kind of started yeah. in this country. I thought, I, don't, I just want to, I may be confused. Maybe someone can uh, holler at us. Uh, the Operation Paperclip, I know that was bringing in ex-Nazis. And maybe I'm confused. Maybe that has nothing to do with LSD, but I I I, I, don't, I can't remember. But um, but I remember that. Yeah, I know that uh, to to some extent. Yeah, that the U.S. government was part of that early research and development of of LSD. So that that'll be interesting. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. So we go all the way from when LSD was legal till it was made illegal, like around the summer of love, like 1967, all the way into all the war and drug stuff. And then you know the third act is going to be like now you know, where I'm going to interview like a lot of people that are at the forefront of the psychedelics movement now, you know, that are pushing for legality because in the sixties, when it started, I mean, it, it was for like spiritual, 
medicinal and, and therapeutic stuff. And they used to actually have, you could pay a doctor and you would like go to their office and they would have like, you know, monitored trip sessions, you know, like they would prep you and they would put you in a room or put you in an environment, wherever it's at. And they would like monitor you, you know, and apply like the right amount of dosage. And it was like a very structured thing, you know, that was, that was for like spiritual and therapeutic stuff to help people. And then, you know, once it got, you know, it spread, I think really like I'm talking about in my documentary too, that, uh, you know, like when Timothy Leary kind of came, you know, and I know Timothy Leary is an icon to a lot of people in the LSD world, but really Timothy Leary turned the government against LSD because he was so brash and, you know, outspoken and, you know, getting so much press, you know, that a lot of the outlaws that I know from the sixties, you know, they kind of blame him for LSD, you know, being lumped in the war on drugs and all the sentences that, you know, happened in the, in the eighties and nineties. I'm pretty sure that then the CIA was experimenting with LSD as a type of truth yeah. serum or, or, MK Ultra. MK yeah, Ultra. MK that's Ultra. what I'm thinking of. Yeah. Okay. okay. I was saying Operation Paperclip. I'm all fucked up. Maybe we'll get marked. At. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. MK Ultra. I knew it was. I was getting confused about which government conspiracy um, <laughs> we're talking about here. Right. Yeah, Whitey MK Bulger. Ultra, yeah. Whitey Bulger. Yeah. Whitey yeah the, 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 that's right. Yeah. That track. came out. Yeah. That that's that's pretty far out. It took like 46 trips in prison in order to get a sentence reduced. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I, I, that's that's insane. And then uh, another big project that I got in production right now is one I got with Scott and Christian Cipollini. They're my partners in that. It's called uh, Dope Men. That's a working title right now. But we're actually looking, you know, like in popular culture, you know, really from the Godfather, there's like this big theory, you know, that the mafia doesn't sell dope. So this documentary kind of looks at where the, the first, you know, drug cartel came from. And, and the first drug cartel came, you know, it can, goes all the way back to, you know, Arnold, Arnold Rothstein, you know, who a lot of people know from the, uh, you know, the White Sox, the the Chicago, like fixing the, I think it was like the 1919 1990. Black Sox yeah. scandal. And then, uh, you know, who some of his disciples were like Lucky Luciano, you know, uh, Jack Lake's Diamond, you know, and these other gangsters that everybody, you know, people like don't even seem to know that like these dudes, they invented the global narcotic trade. They were like the first cartel yeah that's where jimmy and i are, are uh, broadcasting from right now um you know detroit is actually was was ground zero even more so than the new york city for you know the the heroin super highway uh from you know the i would say from the the mid 40s all the way into the late 70s early 80s uh it was all kind of coming through detroit and just like you know the the whole purpose of this documentary is to debunk the uh, debunk the notion that the mafia wasn't involved in drugs and actually flip that paradigm and show people that that that's what the the drugs built the mafia actually they, um yeah they especially yeah post world war 2 detroit yeah. and we uh uh, to rub some of our own stuff in Detroit True Crime Chronicles. Chronicles. Jimmy and I co-wrote. Right. The, the, the um, Detroit uh, Drug Connection. What do we even, I can't remember what we called <laughs> it. Detroit Heroin Drug Pipeline. Connection, Heroin Detroit. Pipeline, yeah, whatever. <laughs> I can't remember. But, uh, <laughs> but check it yeah, out. Yeah, you know, the Detroit Italians, uh, <laughs> specifically uh, Giovanni Papadon Preziola and uh, Raphael uh, Jimmy Quasarano, uh, you know, they were the you know two biggest dope bosses, not just really in Detroit. They, they were two of the biggest 
dope bosses on on the globe. They were supplying the globe. supplying New York. Yeah, at, at Coppola, Frankie so, Coppola. Um, yes, we're very familiar here in Detroit with how the Italians were at the forefront of the of the narcotics game as opposed to shunning it. You know, like, that's still in the literature because I, I was just grading papers a few nights ago, and I my gang's an organized crime class. I have students that write research papers about crime families. I mean, sometimes they can do whatever. They could be, could be cartels, biker, gang, whatever. But in some cases, they choose Italian mafia of crime families. And um, I'm not blaming the students at all. It's in the literature. Right. In the literature, my I students know. will write that the mafia has a prohibition. And they'll reference like a legitimate source. Yeah, yeah a legitimate yeah. source. And then, But then later on, they'll talk about how a guy caught a drug case. And I'm like, well, don't you see the inconsistency here? How can, how can these yeah. guys be catching drug cases? Well, I mean, again, prohibition a, a on slight di <laughs> we're, we're digressing a little bit. But I think that these mobsters that ostensibly try to put out this narrative that they were anti-drug in their heads they could rationalize and say well i'm not dealing drugs i'm taking an envelope from someone who i don't want to know where that envelope is coming from you know where that where that cash in that envelope is sourced from but i'll take the envelope knowing full well that that envelope is is drug money well we our recent episode with patty naughton yeah. that just dropped this week dea undercover she she infiltrated the jackaloni crew right. and you know, so there was the lip service to we don't, but every guy in their crew. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't think Tony and Billy Jacqueline were necessarily giving lip service to anti. Yeah, no, you're, yeah, probably not. Yeah, but I right, do right. know that Jack, other guys, Jack yeah. Toco and Tony right. Zerilli, and yeah, and I, I, I'm not sure about Joe Zerilli, but I definitely know Jack Toco was was yeah, someone yeah. that was incredibly anti-drug, but was taking so much money from Jimmy Quasarano, it was hard to kind of believe Well, all that, those, the, the yeah. Angelo Bruno, Paul Castellano. Right. Angelo Bruno had a, a, a no-drug policy, but, but his, you know, his biggest earner is Long John yeah, Martirano, yeah. who wasn't a member. Right. So, like, until Scarfo, Scarfo made him a and member. The, and the, uh, but so, so Bruno could, like, rationalize that, well, he's not a member of the organization. And he was, he was getting a cut, Bruno, I know we're digressing, but Bruno's also getting a cut from the Cherry Hill Gambino yeah. heroin, and he's getting a cut from the Black Brotherhood guys. So he's bringing in drug money left and right, even yeah, and, if he has and, a, a and, and in official every, prohibition. And almost in every major city in America, until the 80s, all of the African-American and Hispanic drug organizations were being supplied by the Italians. Yeah. Right. So... I mean, we get into this. We're going to get into this uh, on the do in the documentary Dope Men uh, with with Seth and, and me and Christian, and um, I'm really excited for it because I think this is this this can be a real narrative changer. The, the big question I have for both of you is, as you're putting together this documentary and you want to interview an academic who's an expert on this, well, we're definitely do, interviewing Jimmy. Do you B. have anybody in mind that you might? <laughs> Shame I already put I already put you on the interview list three years ago, <laughs> okay. buddy. All right, thanks, guys. Thank yeah. you, gentlemen. <laughs> so, yeah, and a, a, another thing that that Dopeman is going to look at it, it's going to look at the heroin trade, but it's also going to look at you know like people have this notion in this country like that the war on drugs started like in the seventies when Richard Nixon you know coined the phrase, but really the war on drugs started back in the twenties at the end of Prohibition when Harry Anslinger who was a failed prohibition agent, you know, was looking for his next move. And he formed, he was a, nominated as the head of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, was the predecessor to the DEA. And really, if you look at like our whole drug policy and marijuana policy and everything, you know, that has been through the whole war on drugs era in the 80s and 90s, this dude started all that thinking like back then, because 
You know, he was chasing Lucky Luciano for heroin. You know, he was chasing Billie Holiday, you know, for heroin, you know, because she was a big jazz singer and had a heroin problem. You know, he was, you know, saying like all the Mexicans and, and all the blacks, you know, the whole reefer madness thing, like racializing, you know, cannabis. Yeah, that, that all starts It all with comes him. from this guy. Yeah, he was yeah, a total so- total racist. However you feel about dr- drugs, there's no question he was a racist dude. And he was pretty open, pretty candid about it. Yeah, and-, and this dude, and this dude, like in, in our society, like in law enforcement and government, this dude is like held up like as this, you know, this, you know, American, you know, champion or this American hero. And like, that's another thing. We're going to look at his story in this dope man, you know, because it coincides, you know, with, with chasing Lucky Luciano, because he, he chased Lucky Luciano religiously, you know, yeah. like, like he had a hard on for Lucky Luciano. So we're going to we're going to explore his story and where the war on drugs really started. You know, it's interesting. I mean, you could maybe talk about the documentary. I know we're going over time here, but um, maybe we can talk about this later too. Um, at the same time, I think I think there's a point to be made that Anslinger and then later Saragusa, other guys at the FBN, I think it's a lot of times they were overstating uh, how the, the sort of Lucky Luciano, like this powerhouse, because it fit into their narrative of like the, the, the like what we now refer to as the kingpin strategy. Like he he had the target on him, America or what do you, what do you call it? public enemy number public one? Public enemy number public, one. And and so I think in a lot of cases they were overstating because we we document in the chapter we wrote like like Luciano was some of the Detroit guys were, were pushing way more weight than, than Luciano was and they were sort of off off the radar. So um, anyhow, it's fascinating. I really look forward to to. To hearing what you guys uh, and seeing what you guys. Well, this put out. was really. I mean, Jimmy used the word epic, and I think that's a, a very appropriate. This was just an epic. It's going to end up being like two and a half hours of us chopping it up with Seth, and I loved every second of it. Uh, I'm not uh, just buttering buttering you up or um, blowing smoke to tell you that your life truly is a movie, and you've written all these stories about guys that think their lives are movies and a lot of those guys do have lives that lend themselves to to a, a, a scripted uh, depiction a lot of those guys don't frankly but i have no doubt that Seth's story would would be just fire on the screen because it just it hits so many of those notes it, it, there's so much intrigue it's so compelling Seth's such a great storyteller and then you know to have the happy ending that he's had and let's shout out to his wife who's just uh you know Diane is just like what a saint she's been for you it's so impressive Seth it really is uh, I'm, yeah. I'm just my, my my story's not over I'm in the beginning of the third act right now yeah yeah, yeah no it's great we we hope to have you back on and uh if I just before we sign off remind our audience to uh follow us on social media uh instagram facebook twitter and um i know seth does seth is he's he's good dude man he's he shouts us out man he supports us on social media so we got we really appreciate that seth and we try to to do it for your stuff too it's like goodfellas right it's like goodfellas right where they say you gotta look out for your friends. That's right. That's right. And uh, make sure you're out there you're Don't listening. Don't say nothing to nobody. That's right. Keep your mouth. Shut. Keep your mouth shut. <laughs> but uh, subscribe too. I, I think that's something I always forget to mention in the other episodes. I say follow us on social media, but subscribe. That's a big thing. Is to subscribe to the podcast so that we can keep on bringing you great guests like Seth. Um, isn't that I, qu- I, we're digressing again? Yeah. But isn't that quote from Goodfellas? I, I've always thought it was a bit redundant. When, when Robert De Niro takes the young Henry Hill aside, said, you learned the two greatest things in life. 
Oh, never rat on your never, friends. Keep your mouth. Keep your mouth shut. Never rat. <laughs> yeah. I mean, isn't that the same thing? Yeah. Like, yeah. I yeah. I guess yeah. I guess you could talk without ratting your friends right. out. Right. Yeah. Right. But I, even as a fourteen-year-old watching that movie, I I came away being like, wait, it's the same thing. He's telling him to do the same thing twice. Yeah. yeah I never. This thought is about me. That. The best line. Right. The best line is Joe Pesci. Oh, well, he's, he's he stole the movie. I mean, he, he uh, yeah. ended up uh, making his career off that film. Yeah, no, he's the and, best. And they said they said he just improvised that line. Yeah, that's, well, that's that what I hear. No, no, they said that the scene was again. We're digressing here, but the scene was created on the fly. It wasn't in the screenplay, and they needed another scene to like add color. And Joe Pesci had been at a dinner as a young man where that same oh. interaction that he had with, with the yeah. Ray Liotta character, Henry Hill, had taken place where this very scary, powerful gangster started playing a, a prank on his friend, thinking that, like, the, the making the friend believe that he had offended him and was like, you think I'm funny? Yeah. And Joe Pesci talked to Rob, or talked to De Niro, Scorsese. talked to Scorsese, talked to Ray Liotta, and they, they wrote it, like, the day or two of the time they shot it. I'm and then, and then a lot of it was, as Seth said, a lot of that uh, interactions was was improvised. It's good to know you're not you're not being out of order. What is he right. saying? <laughs> good to know. Yeah, it's like a he's like hanging on my yeah. shoulder like yeah. pending dame, yeah. like a vulture. I don't mean to be out of line. You don't what mean to be, call me a deadbeat in front of my <laughs> friends. You don't mean to be out of line. <laughs> you, go on you know what they do? funny. They use that line in prison a lot. They yeah. use that line in prison a lot. That's great. All right, Seth. Thanks again, man. Good luck with everything. Uh, I'm going to sign us off. Jimmy Bucciolato, thanks. Scott Bernstein, OG out. <laughs>